turn to Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1. We are starting a brand new series today. I love, love, love preaching the Bible, and I love having brand new sermon series to launch to everybody. And I might be the only one that's excited about it. But man, I am excited. I don't care if the sound system's not working. I'm wearing my Goonies shirt and preaching the, the, the Run Your Way Race sermon series. We have, as a church, for so long, we have been dormant, stagnant. We have just been either waiting or, or we've dug in our heels to not move. And there's a time for that, and that's cool, but there's a time to run your race. And we're going to, for the next seven weeks, we are going to explore two verses in the Bible. Specifically, I mean, we'll have a lot more verses, but only one passage of the Bible we're going to look at for the next seven weeks. And honestly, we could look at it for from here until Jesus returns, and we'd still have stuff to talk about. But, but for seven Sundays, we are going to talk about Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. So if you have your Bibles open and you turn to Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1 starts like this. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Let us pray. Jesus, your word is good. And so much is jam-packed into this one little section of scripture. Two short verses encapsulate so much about who you are. And we endeavor to run our race and run it well. But we need your help. Running spiritually is not our strong suit. One of the reasons why you died to give us life is that we might have the life to run. I pray for your help, Lord. I pray for your help as I preach today, that these would not be uh, unnecessary burdens upon your people, but these words would be life to your people, because they are your words. We give you the praise, the honor, and the glory in Jesus' name. Amen. When I was in the seventh grade, in California, it's a little different than here, uh, we would go to one school from kindergarten to sixth grade, and then you would transition to a new school, a junior high school first seventh and eighth grade only and then you would go to high school after that for your last four years um unless you did the extended plan um but in seventh grade that was my first experience of gym class you know it, previous to that it was just pe we're gonna go outside we're gonna play dodgeball volleyball basketball something with the ball we're gonna just play outside but in the seventh grade in gym class there was something called the mile they had an Olympic-sized track, and you were going to run that thing four times, equal to about 1,600 kilometers, roughly a mile. And they were going to test you on it. Now, it might seem unfathomable, but I was approximately the same size in seventh grade as I am now. So I liked running as much then as I do now, meaning I do not like running at all. I've often made the joke, if you see me running, you should start running too, because something's chasing me. I am... Something bad's coming. You better start running too. Um, and if I try to trip you, well, I'll, I'll ask for forgiveness in heaven. Um, that being said, I hated it. Oh, it was so – and I was so slow, and it was always hot on a mild day. And I'd get out there, and I'd, just, and I'd get far enough away from the teacher where I'd make running, walking look like running. 
And then I'd come get closer to him, and I'd actually start jogging. And I'd run like a 13 or 14-minute mile. It was ridiculous. I'd be like one of the last kids to come in. Well, then one day I decided, you know what? This is ridiculous. I'm going to get out there, and every chance I can, I'm going to run as fast as I can until my lungs just want to explode. And then I will rest a little bit and then get my second wind and third wind and then, then take off. And I'm going to have the best mile time that I've ever had. This is – I'm going to do it. Tired of being last. Get out there. Still last. Worst mile time I ever ran. I don't like running <laughs> physically. However, those two mindsets are often the mindsets that we adopt as Christians. Sometimes it's just, we'll just do the bare minimum. It, it looks like I'm running, but I'm not really running. It looks like I'm actually participating, but honestly, I checked out a long time ago. I don't care about the end result. I don't care uh, that I'm in last place. But, but there's another mindset that says, hey, you know what? I'm going to run as hard as I can every chance that I get. And I know I'm going I'm to get tired, that I'm going to get winded, it's going to hurt, and I'm going to keep running. But here's the, the great thing about the gospel of Jesus. The reward is more than just how fast you did it. We don't fight for or run for a crown or a trophy that is perishable, meaning it's not made out of gold that it should rust or, or made out of a, 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 a plant like the Romans had these crowns that were made out of these leaves that would just perish and, and fade. Our crown is found in Jesus Christ, the everlasting, the almighty, the beginning and the end. Our trophy never fades because Jesus is our trophy. So he is our prize. So as Christians, we have to make this decision. We have to come to this conclusion, and you must be challenged to make that choice and come to that conclusion, that you are going to run. Now, the danger in this sermon, and I prayed for this already, is that I will just heap burdens upon you. I will neglect the actual pain you're going through right now and come out with a message that basically says just grin and bear it and keep going. That is not what we are going to preach over the next seven weeks. Your problems are very real. I know some of them, probably just a fraction. Some of you have never shared what you're actually going through with me. Maybe you've shared it with other people. And I recognize that. It, life hurts. It hurts when, when marriages start going, uh, start just tanking or when businesses aren't working or when your health is fading and when your prayers are seemingly unanswered and you just can't catch a break and you're tired and you're overworked and you just are so heavily burdened. And then some weird pastor in, in a Goonies t-shirt says, hey, you need to work harder. That's not what we're doing today. I'm here to tell you and to teach you and to hopefully have you hear the message of what it means to run your race because sometimes running your race actually means just standing still praise god for standing still not not in the not in the laziness sense but those times where you where you rest in the lord you realize you know what lord i've done all that i can i have i have followed your word to the best of my ability i'm not perfect but man i'm loving my neighbor and i'm I'm giving and I'm serving and I'm I'm just pouring out all that I can. I've got nothing left to give. There's a time where you can sit back and say, you know what, Lord, I'm going to be still and just know that you are the God that loves me so much. 
that these circumstances that I am in, they are very temporary. Even if they should last to the day that I die, they'll end that day. And I will go to be with you. And so we have to understand what it means to run our race. It's more than just being amped up and hyped and, 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 and a rah, rah, hey, come on, and me making you clap. And I mean, you could pay for that at an at a amphitheater or a, a, a convention center. You can go pay a couple hundred bucks, have some guy sell you some stuff, give you some big fiery message that really ultimately ends in nothing. I'm sure if you take his 12-step program, everything's going to turn out great. You'll be rich or something. But, but honestly, it's not going to change a lot about you. Our problems are in here. Our problems are in here. We, this is why um, if you move from one place to another, it seems like the problems follow you. The, the mindset is I'll just move and things will be brand new yeah, for a time. But those problems that, that came along with you, they're, they're still there. They were in here the whole time. And you will somehow duplicate or or uh, replicate those problems all over again because you haven't gotten to the source of the problem. The, 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 the external has very limited power over you if you will be cognizant of the fact that it has very little power over you. Ecclesiastes chapter 3 says that there's a time for everything, right? We're all pretty familiar with that verse. You've probably heard the, the song from the 60s. It's a pretty well-known verse, probably the only verse in Ecclesiastes, Ecclesiastes that's pretty well-known. Ecclesiastes, oh, that's a hard word. Ecclesiastes chapter 3 verse 1 says this, For everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven. For the next six verses or seven verses, uh, the writer of Ecclesiastes is going to uh, pose some opposites. A time to be born and a time to die. The time to be born one, we kind of like that one. The time to, be, to time to die, we don't like to talk about that one so much. A time to plant, and a time to pluck up what is planted. A time to kill, and a time to heal. A time to break down, and a time to build up. A time to weep, and a time to laugh. A time to mourn, and a time to dance. A time to cast away stones, and a time to gather stones together. A time to embrace, and a time to refrain from embracing. A time to seek, and a time to lose. A time to keep and a time to cast away. A time to tear and a time to sow. A time to keep silence and a time to speak. A time to love and a time to hate. A time for war and a time for peace. Now I share that verse with you not because uh, you don't already know it. You probably already do. But to point out that this life is filled with what we call in the church seasons. It's a pretty common word. It's a pretty cliche word that we use nowadays but but it's truthful there are seasons of our life where everything seems to be going our way seems like man we're on top of the world god is so good and and i'll be honest with you those seasons come and go very quickly if nothing else it's just time is so much more fleeting when we're enjoying ourselves or when when we feel blessed but then there are times as well of great trying great trial to just be tested over and over and over and you're just like lord what's going on and the first lie you believe is that somehow god has left you that you no longer have his favor that you aren't blessed by him and that he does not hear you it's a great lie of the enemy to teach you that just because you aren't being quote unquote blessed that god is distant or not hearing you it's a lie if you read i believe it's first Chron uh first kings chapter 17 um where elijah the prophet goes to battle with the prophets of Baal 
He begins to joke to them and say, hey, maybe your God doesn't hear you. Maybe he's on vacation. Maybe he's distant. Uh, just talk louder. Scream to your God. And they're like, yeah, that makes sense. Let's do that. And they start like cutting themselves because they believe if they shed blood, their God will be like, oh, they're shedding blood. I got I to gotta listen to them. And, and Elijah just laughed at them. Do you know how many Christians believe the same thing? God didn't hear my prayer because he didn't give me what I want. So he must not love me. That's a lie from Satan himself. God has promised to never leave you nor forsake you. If God has not answered your, your whatever in the way that you have described it and prescribed it and wanted it, that doesn't mean that God doesn't love you. That means God has something better for you than that. He simply said no. And we don't, we don't have a God who just writes blank checks to us. You can do whatever you want. We have a God who will say yes and no and later. And sometimes he says no. We've got to be cool with that. You know, we, God, you said no? Fine. No to that job. No to that relationship. No to this. No to that. And be okay with that because we trust him. We do that with our own children. We tell them, you've got to trust me right now. And if they didn't trust us, it would hurt us, right? Why, don't they, why can't they see that I'm bigger than them and I can see farther than them? That jumping off the roof is going to lead to something happening that's going to cost me a lot of money and them a lot of pain. Why can't they see that? But the short-sightedness of a child says, oh, I, uh, no, it'd be fine. It'd be awesome to just jump off the roof and, you know, whatever. Sometimes we have to trust the Lord when he says no. And if the Lord says no, it's not because he hates you or because he doesn't like you. It's because he knows what's best for you because he does indeed love you so, so very much. I cannot begin to – one of the hardest jobs of a preacher or a pastor is to describe the love that God has for you. It's immense. It's huge. It's unfathomable. I, I, I struggle with – and the Bible uses parables and, and metaphors to describe this so that we can better understand the love of God. That's why pastors a lot of time use illustrations because just telling us God loves you, it's like, well, I don't can't get my mind around that. And then we, we talk about a father and a son, a good father who loves his son, and we can kind of get a better glimpse of the love that God has for us as his people. There's a time for everything. Psalm 46 and 10 says, Be still and know that I am God. We probably know that verse pretty well. If you use it as a cliche, try to redeem that a little bit. Try to, try to know where that verse is found. You'll be able to point people in that direction. Don't just simply say, be still and know that I am God. Tell them, you know, there's a verse in the Bible. It's Psalm 46. I think it's verse 10. Be still and know that I am God. And there's more to it than that. 46 and 10 says, be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. Last couple of weeks have been pretty hard for Christians. Amen? I mean, we've taken a beating. We are being inundated with people who are trying to to rearrange, to change, and fabricate false, uh, false teachings from the Bible to justify sin. And if you're like me, it's like, you can't do that. The Bible is not like a set of Legos that we can rearrange in whatever order we want to make what we want. The Bible has been written and said, and sure, there is some scholarly work that we have to do to, to better understand the culture and the time in which it was written so that we truly understand what it means when it says that God is love. But, but we don't get to just change everything to suit our own, our own desires and our own wants to justify what we want. It's been really hard, right? 
to hear that there's you can't argue with people on Facebook all day. We've got jobs, and that's no fun. There's too many cat videos to watch. You can't be arguing about. The truth is, though, but God will be exalted. God will be honored. God will be revered. I believe I forget where the scriptures found. I wish I had that pulled up. Um, where every knee will bow, every tongue will confess. One day, everybody will do that. You, me, us, atheist, agnostic, Hindu, whatever, whatever religion is found throughout the world, everybody at some point will bow their knee to Jesus in reverence and confess that he is God. Philippians 2.10. Thank you, Ben, my, my, my go-to guy here with this Bible verse. Philippians 2.10. Every knee will bow, every tongue will confess. We just have chosen to do this now. Amen? We have decided that we will bow our knees now in reverence to Jesus. Some will do so unwillingly when it's too late. But praise God, we've had the opportunity to do it today, to give our lives to Jesus today. But Jesus will be exalted. It's not our job to make sure. We, we, we can preach the gospel. That's our job. We, we can praise him amongst the congregation. That's our job. But to worry that God somehow is suffering right now, God's a big God. He can take care of himself. He's been doing this for thousands of years. Not the first fight he's ever been to. As the old saying goes, this is not his first rodeo. He's done this time and time again. We will come out of this, maybe not even in our own generation, but we will. Christians will. The church will survive, and we will be okay. Now, there's a time to be still. And there's a time to pray. Praying's good. But there's a time to get up and actually do something. Turn to Exodus chapter 14. And as you turn to Exodus chapter 14, I want to just give you kind of a buildup here. For 400 years, the Israelites have been slaves to Egypt. It started off as a good relationship. Um, Jacob and his children going off to Egypt to be with Joseph, his son who had been put in this place of power. His family was the, 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 the Jews that numbered about 70, literally 70 people, um, were saved from famine um, in that exodus, if you will, the, the, the reverse exodus going into Egypt. But those people die off. The, the people now multi, they've multiplied into the, the millions. And the current pharaoh uh, has an anti-Israelite or anti-Jewish agenda and he decides to enslave them all to put them to hard labor he keeps trying to squash them but something's happening he's putting pressure on the israelites the jewish people and they're just growing that much faster they're having more children they're not dying off they're getting stronger and more prosperous they, they, no matter what he can do to them they keep surviving but after 400 years the people begin to cry out to god they start saying, God, rescue us, save us from the Pharaoh, save us from Egypt. So he raises up Moses. We all know about Moses. If you don't know about Moses, read the book of Exodus, read the book of Genesis, lead up into Moses. God raised him up to lead the, uh, the Israelites out of Egypt. And he does that. But here we find them. Here's a fun, here's a fun scripture to read today. Here we go. Verse 10 says this, When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. They had left Egypt, 
and, and looked back, and there was Pharaoh coming after them. And, and they were a big, mighty army. The Israelites were not an army. They were just four million people, give or take. This army's coming for them, and they're going to kill them. Slaves who run away, slaves that go away, they end up getting killed. And that's going to be their fate if the Egyptians show up. So never mind the ten plagues that have happened in Egypt through, uh, through God, through Moses. Never mind the, the great uh, treasures that they took from Egypt as they left. It's all over. And here's, what they, here's how they reply. Continuing in verse, uh, I think it's four, uh, 10. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, Is it because there were no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us? Uh, what have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. How quickly things have changed because there is a threat. Now let's not get too high up on our horse and look down upon them and say those silly little Jewish people. What? How could they have been so foolish to say something so silly? God's not going to save them. We say the same thing all of the time, knowing full well what Jesus has done for us and what he has promised to do. We, we get into a circumstance or a situation and we cry out to God, why are you doing this to me? Why are you not with me? These people were having their children killed. They were being worked tirelessly making brick without even the supplies to make the brick. They were just being told, make brick, and then go find the stuff you need to make that brick. But they've already forgotten. We, we told you, don't, don't take us out. No, that's, that's not what they were doing. They were saying, please save us and rescue us. And that's what God's doing. And so, verse 13 says, And Moses said to the people, Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, shall never, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. Sometimes God can do more in your silence and in your being still than in all the work you try to do. Some of you have a worker's heart. You have a servant's heart. You're just, you work, 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 work. That's cool. You got to make sure you rest. You're, you are going to rest. You're either going to choose to rest or God's going God's to do something to make you rest. Make sure you're resting, okay? But then the Lord turns to Moses in verse 15. He says to Moses, why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. Lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it, that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. They've already gotten the promise that God's going to deal with the Egyptians. At that point, it's their job to just go and do what they've been told to do. And so God tells them, why, Moses, why are you crying out to me? I've given you a job to do. And here's where we, where we can apply this, and here's where we, be kinda, we kinda become faulty with our theology and our understanding of God. We think that once these problems go away, then we will serve the Lord. Then we will do what he has told us to do. And I'm here to tell you, you are called to do what the Bible has told you in spite of those things. The, the problems that are your Egyptians chasing you down, wanting to take your life, they're never going to go away. You are going to be victorious over them. Have no doubt in that, that you are going to rise above the circumstances you are in. 
You are victorious today, not because you're really great, but because Jesus is really great. It's not dependent on you or your performance. It was all dependent upon his performance on the cross, and he nailed that, no pun intended, and so now we get to enjoy the victory as we live our life in faith to Christ. But there are times where we say, you know what? I've got this chasing me. I've got this on the sides. I've got this in front of me. And you know what? I've got a job to do. There are things that I need to do. We, we have a bit of a difference, you and I, in that I have to preach here on Sunday mornings and Wednesday nights. If, if, if sometimes if I were to, to change and adopt our culture's mindset, I would never preach on a Sunday morning because I would always have a problem that's right in front of me that i got to deal with first. No, no, once I deal with that, then I'll preach the sermon on Sunday. Well, who's going to preach in the meantime? I'll, I'll get to it, trust me. I'll get to it later. I'll get to it next year. I'll get to it you know, when the kids go away, when the leukemia is gone. I'll get to it later. No. And the difference between pastors and, and, and the laity or the people of the congregation or just the church in general is very little because we've all been given very similar jobs. Dads, you are pastors of your home. You pastor way more than I do. I'm going to see you today for an hour hour and a half, Wednesday for 45 minutes to an hour, and that's probably it. And that's if you show up on Wednesday, which most of you are not. So an hour and a half a week, and you expect your children and your wife and yourself to just be awesome in that time and nothing else? You've got to pastor the rest of your week. I want you to follow me as I follow Christ and learn that. I want to teach you that. I want you to, to find Jesus, the good shepherd, and copy him. But you can't, you can't just expect to go home and then coast for the rest of the week until we go to the church again and everybody else can pastor us. We don't, we don't have that. We can't afford to do that. We have a whole generation coming up that, that they're very spiritual, but they don't know Jesus. And that includes our own children and nieces and nephews and grandchildren. And we need to teach them about Jesus. We need to show them Christ. We need to show them that they are loved by more than just a superficial love that, that just expects everything back from them. So we have to ask ourselves, this is the challenge today, what is my race? My race is not the same as your race. The, the track set before me is not the same, but the instruction is the same. I got to keep running. You got to keep running. There are going to be times where we're just trotting along, doing the best we can. It, it's not a sprint. It, it literally is a marathon of life. A marathon, you've got you've to you've have a, a game plan. You gotta know what you're going to do. You're gonna to have to know when to, to, to increase and when to decrease. When to drink water, when not to drink water, that sort of thing. I assume, I'm not a big running expert, but, but there's gotta be a game plan. It's gotta be more than just run fast. I mean, that's, it's gotta be more to it than that. To last some 26.9 kilometers or whatever a, a marathon is. What is your race? That's just another way of saying, what are you called to do? Some of you, like me, are called to do a specific thing. I've been called to pastor and preach and to teach, to counsel and to, to just be a leader here at the church, to be a, a servant leader. You know, pastor Ben, called to lead worship here on a Sunday morning. Uh, men like Dan, who, who do sound on a Sunday morning. The mewers who are teaching the kids. You know, they're called to do these things. But those callings, while they might be specific, in general, we all have the same job. Turn to Matthew chapter 28. 
Matthew chapter 28 is known as the Great Commission. And the Great Commission has been given to all Christians, not just pastors, not just teachers, not just leaders, not just deacons, to everybody. This is our job calling and what we should be doing. Matthew chapter 28, verse 16. Now the 11 disciples, because Judas is dead at this point, or, or gone at this point, went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, Jesus, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Now, yes, Jesus did speak specifically to the disciples. But do you know why the disciples were the disciples? Jesus chose them. Men like uh, James and John, Andrew and Peter, they were fishermen. Jesus encountered them said, hey, come with me. I'll make you fishers of men. Take those nets. We'll use spiritual nets. We'll preach the gospel and we'll catch men that way. They were the disciples, not just because they were chosen. They were indeed chosen. Just, just as you have been chosen before the foundations of the earth to follow Jesus. But they were disciples because for three and a half years, they ate and they drank and they slept and they lived with Jesus. Day in and day out. They didn't just have a church service every Sunday with him. Every day they walked with him. They talked with him. They conversed with him. They asked him questions. He answered them. He showed them things. They tried to show him the temple to impress him, and he wasn't really that all impressed. They lived, and discipleship comes in the living with. That's why we're always trying to do stuff together as a church. We can't just always have a church-sanctioned activity. We can't just have a committee that says, okay, now we're going to go have lunch on this day, and then that will be discipleship. That's a little sterile. What we want to do is get together and just live and just talk. And get to know each other and disciple each other. We're saying, Pastor Tony, I, I don't I don't feel like I can make a disciple. I know, neither do I. It's very daunting. It's a big task to know that God would use you, a crooked stick, to draw a straight line for someone else to see. But he works in that somehow miraculously. Discipleship is just about living with other people. And we've been called to be disciple makers. You have been called to be a disciple maker. These children will grow up today, uh, soon, and they will become our disciples and then go off and make disciples themselves. How you conduct yourself in front of them will show them what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. And they will stand before God alone, but wouldn't it be great to know that they stood before God in the righteousness of Christ because you had something to do with that? Because you... You knew the Bible because you knew what God's word said. You knew the risen Christ. And you took him seriously and you followed his word. I, I don't know how God's going to reward us, but man, what a great reward to have. Amen. To know that you, you, were, you were integral in the, in the life of anybody who came to know Jesus. But that's going to come at a price, isn't it? Being a disciple is always going to cost you something. It's going to cost you, let's just say, pulling this out of thin air, let's say you're building something and you ask somebody to come along with you to build it and they don't know what they're doing. 
But you are going to disciple them in that opportunity in that moment. Could you do it faster by yourself? Probably. But then there's no discipleship there. Your kids want to help you do stuff? Well, I could do it faster. I could have the dishes done without you much faster than if you helped. But what about, the, what about discipling your children or your grandchildren or your nieces and nephews or your friends' children? It all starts with making that choice to do so. And knowing that you are called to do that in spite of your circumstances. When you're wounded and hurt, obviously the discipleship's going to diminish. And you're going to need a church like ours to come alongside you and say, you know what? We want to prop you up. Like, like Moses holding up his hands as the war went out and he needed people to hold up his hands. We want to do that with you. We want to come alongside you, help you hold up your arms. But we're not going to do that one day a week. We have to live together, to work together that we may disciple each other and disciple others. Baptizing in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Baptism is integral. It's important. It's essential to Christians. Well, can I, this is the question you always get. Well, can I go to heaven without being baptized? What about the thief on the cross? It's always the argument. The one guy who was nailed to a cross and whether or not he made it to heaven because he wasn't baptized. If you are nailed to a cross and have not been baptized yet, then maybe you get a pass. Maybe the, the God in heaven who himself was nailed to a cross might say, you know what? I know what that's like. I'm going to go ahead and let you get off with not being baptized. But last time I checked, let me know if I'm wrong, none of us have been nailed to a cross, right? Okay, so we have the opportunity to be baptized. We we don't have them that often because of our slow growth here at the church. We're growing, but we're slowly growing. It's a slow, steady growth. I'm okay with that. So we only have one to five usually new converts that need to be baptized. And there are six months out of the year, sometimes eight, where getting into a pool is the last thing we want to do because it's frozen or, or, or you know, sub-freezing. So we only have this small window, usually the summertime, where we can be baptized. Last year I picked a day in August, and it was like 63 degrees. By the time I'm preaching in my 80s, it will have been like 32 degrees, because I think it was actually 67, and every time I tell the story, another degree gets knocked off. But I'm pretty sure it was about 63 degrees, and it was freezing. We did it anyway, so this year we're a little more proactive earlier in the summer, and we're going to baptize people in the name of Jesus. But why do we do that? Do we just... We just want to dunk people underwater. Can we make a festival out of it? Do like a dunk tank? Baptize you in the name of Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Throw a softball. Psh, that didn't work. God doesn't want you to be baptized. Like that. That would be pretty great, wouldn't it? Depending on who's in the tank. Um. Uh. But my point is, why do we baptize? We baptize to show that we are a part of the church. In baptism, we are symbolically dying as we go under coming back to life as we're raised up. We are, we are showing the world that we identify with this cross of Jesus. We're, we're not this religion, that religion. We are Christians. We are showing the world and we are showing the church that we belong to it, that we have made that decision to follow Jesus. We are symbolically being washed of our sins as we go down, being cleansed, coming back up being made brand new. God told the prophet Isaiah, come reason with me. Though your sins may be as scarlet, I will make them as white as snow. 
Can you be saved without being baptized? Yes. But if you can be baptized, should you? Yes. Even if the water's cold, even if the water's green. This will be our third baptism. The first one, the water was green. The second time, the water was 63. The temperature outside was 63 degrees. Hopefully, we'll get it right this time. It'll be clean and warm, but I can't make any guarantees. If you need to be baptized, it's your time to be baptized. I have great a great goal and a great vision to where we have an actual baptismal here at the church where somebody gives their life to Christ right then and there, and we just dunk them there. Hey, you want, you want to get baptized today? You gave your life to Jesus? You want to get baptized today? Absolutely. Let's do this. Fire up the baptismal. Let's do it. Have it heated and that sort of thing so that people aren't going into hypothermia in the middle of winter. We could just baptize people whenever we want. That'd be awesome to be able to do that. In general, we're called to make disciples and we're called to be baptized. And then we're called to teach. And Jesus doesn't say just teach. He's not just worried about math and spelling. And those are good things. Those are great things. Um, but he's worried. He's not worried. He's, he's, he has told us and commanded us to teach him everything that he has said. Don't, be, don't fall, for the, fall for the lie that, that only the Gospels are about Jesus. John 1 says that this, this is the, the Word of God is God. It's as much part of him as he is a part of it. From, from the very first page to the very last page, that is all about Christ. But one of the specific commands, one of the only commands I want us to focus on today is found in John chapter 13. Turn to John chapter 13. Jesus says, teaching them to, to observe all that I have commanded you. Here's one of the things that he commanded us as, as Christians and followers of Christ. John 13 and 31. If you're not there, here's what I like to do. I like to write down the Bible reference in my notebook, then go to the Bible. Because I can say it five times, there's always somebody who misses the, the, the verse. John 13 and 31 says, When he had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself, and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to you, uh, said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. Verse 34 says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as, you ha just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. See how discipleship and following commands and being baptized is all, all working together. Notice how one of our greatest witnesses on this planet is not that we just wear t-shirts and sing songs, but that we love one another. One of the greatest disservices we do to the world and in the church is when we are divisive and backbiting and gossiping about one another showing that we are worse off than the rest of the world. The best thing we can do is love one another and show the world through our testimony that, that the love that Jesus has given us is real, that we've been changed by it. When we can love one another because Christ has first loved us, the Bible says that's how the world will know we are his disciples. One of the quickest ways the world knows that we're not actually disciples 
is when we say one thing and then do another. Oh, I love Jesus, but I hate that guy. When when Justin uh, rearranged the letters of our key of our marquee that had been changed, he wanted to put up there, "We still love you." And I told him, "I'm like, you know what, Justin? I'm not there yet. Just put just put Jesus still loves you." I I wanted to add, "I'm not cool with you yet." But you know, I had to come to that place where I just forgave the people who vandalized this church, not because they deserve it, but because I want them to know Jesus. And and if somehow this leads to their salvation, as weird as that might be, so be it. And I need them to see Jesus in the way that my actions uh, are played out. And church, as we go to work, as we go to school, and as we go to uh, places of business, as we meet with customers, they need to see that we love the church. Not not put it not put on, but we need to actually love the church. Is the church perfect? No, church is not perfect. You ever watch the churches on TV? Oh my gosh, they're not they're not perfect. They they have their problems. But we have to come to a place where we love the church with all of its flaws and foibles, that we love the church that we have been called to. We are a part of it. We need to love it. The good news is that Jesus wants you to run your race. He is empowering you. He's making you a runner. He's going to be there for the whole marathon. He's going to help you do what he has called you to do, to run your race with endurance. But you need to know this. Everything is going to try to stop you. Everything, everyone, every demon in hell, Satan himself, will try to stop you from running your race. And you must make a choice today. I will run my race. I don't care. I will do it. I will I will love my church. I will love my Lord. I will love my wife. I will love my husband. I will love my children. I will love the stranger. I will love the homeless. I will love the person who I don't agree with. I will love the homosexual. I will love the, the, the Democrats. I will love everyone i will love the republican i will just i will love in in the god-given strength that he has given me i will do everything i can to run this race no matter what satan or the world or my flesh will throw in front of me whether the sound system works or somebody's vandalizing our church we will preach the gospel whether whether your kids are hearing it or whether you're just not into it, you're going to run your race. And like I said before, it's not about how much you do. It's about where your eyes are focused and where you're pointed towards. Sometimes being still is running your race. Sometimes just knowing that God is, is, is actually running. When, when your children get in trouble or you get a call from the principal or, or you get the call from the doctor that, that the test came back and, and the results are not what you want. The reality is being still and knowing that God is still God in that moment is running your race. When, when, when life and relationships and everything are just crumbling down all around you, but you're being still, you're knowing that God is God, you have decided to follow Jesus, you are running your race. You have decided and you're still running, even though it may not feel like running. When you are doing things that nobody ever sees when you're when you're 
doing the behind-the-scenes stuff at church or at a service that nobody ever knows. You're still running your race. The Lord your God still sees you doing that, whether man ever recognizes you or not. Moms, for all the countless hours you're pouring into your children right now to raise them up to be godly men and women, God sees that. You're running your race. That's the race set before you, man, to raise up these kids. Husbands, to raise up your wife and your children to love Jesus. That's part of your race. You've got to run that. For those of you who don't have children or a spouse, you're running your race to show the world that Jesus is everything that the Word of God says. Church, I can't run your race for you. And I wouldn't. Because I would burn out really fast. I have my own race. And many of you have come alongside me to run with me, and I love you for it. The last three years have been three of the hardest years of my life, but it's been that much more easier because people have come alongside us. And that's what the church is supposed to do, and we want to do that with you too. And we may not be able to do everything. For example, my house is going to be foreclosed on. I don't have any money, sorry. Uh, Despite what you might see on television, pastors don't make a lot of money. Um, but you know what? What what can I do? Do we ha- need to help you find another place? Do we need to help have find somebody who can put you up for a couple of days or weeks? What what can we do? Can't do everything, but what can we do? I I can't buy you a car, but I can give you a ride. I can do that. You know, I can't I can't fill your fridge, but I can make you a meal. The church is called to come alongside each other and help each other in times of need. That's what family does. That's what good family does. And so, right now, being still might be the only running you can do, and that's okay. As long as, as long as you are being still and knowing that God is God, that he is going to be exalted, that he's going to do what is needed in this moment for, for today, for tomorrow, and for the future. There's a big difference between standing still and saying, you know what? I'm not doing this anymore. And being still and saying, you know what? I know that God is. I know that he is perfect. I know that he loves me. I know that he will save me from this. But in that middle, it's our choice. What are are we going to choose? Ask yourself this. Here's some questions to ask yourself. Why aren't you running? You know, you know better than I do. Because you know the things that are going on in your life. If I judged you from the outside, I would probably judge wrongly. And you come and say, you, these are the things I have. You'd give me a laundry list of stuff, and I'd be like, wow, okay. But you know you. What are you. What's going on? Why aren't you running your race right now? What excuses do you have to keep you from at least being still and knowing that God is God? I can't answer that question, but you can. Be honest with yourself. Don't lie to yourself. Don't sugarcoat things. Don't make mountains out of molehills. You know, there's some problems much bigger than it really is. Most of our problems come down to insecurities and fears. If we got rid of those, we'd get rid of like 90% of our problems. If we just got rid of our insecurities and our fears. What's stopping you from running? Honestly, what, what or who is stopping you? If you had that same answer standing before Christ, would he accept it? Christ, I didn't run because of this. Would he say, oh, okay. 
I, I don't know. I don't know. You need to ask yourself these questions. Are you even moving? How many of you can look back on your life five or ten years ago and can see the difference? Do you see a difference from the beginning of this year? Why are you stagnant? Being still, being stagnant are two different things. Being stagnant means there's some there's some digging in there. There's something blocked. Something that should be moving isn't. These are questions I ask myself. I'm not off the hook on this. I have to ask myself, why, why aren't I moving? Why, what am I, what's holding me back? What insecurity right now is making me not do this or do that? What, what fear do I have that is wrong? That, that I, am I exalting above the Lord right now? What actual real problem is there that maybe, um, that maybe it's just time to be still and I'm not even being still. I'm just, I'm trying to do everything else to avoid falling before the Lord. You gotta ask yourself those questions. You gotta you gotta get an answer. Be honest with the Lord, be honest with yourself, you'll get an answer. You may not like the answer. God has a tendency to give us answers that it's not that we don't like them, they're true, and they challenge us to be more or different. Turn with me to um uh, Jeremiah chapter twelve. In Jeremiah chapter 12, verse 1, Jeremiah goes to the Lord, much like Habakkuk with a, with a complaint. A complaint. Righteous are you, O Lord, when I complain to you, yet I would plead my case before you. What does the way of the, why does the way of the wicked prosper? Why do all who are treacherous thrive? Sound familiar? A little more poetic than the way we put it, but why are bad, good things happening to bad people and why are bad things happening to good people? You plant them, and they take root. They grow and produce fruit. You are near in their mouth and far from their heart. In their mouth, but not in their heart, we call that a hypocrite, right? They say one thing, but they believe another thing. But you, O Lord, know me. You see me and test my heart toward you. Pull them out like sheep for the slaughter and set them apart for the day of slaughter. How long will the land mourn and the grass of every field wither? For the evil of those who dwell in it, the beasts and the birds are swept away because they said, he will not see our latter end. Jeremiah has come to God and said, God, look. Look at all these people. They don't love you. They say the right things, but their actions prove otherwise. Everyone's suffering because of them. I have an idea. Let's kill them all. I don't know where we got the idea that our, our, the Bible and God and Jesus are very soft and pillowy and politically correct. And, and I mean, the Bible is diplomatic. The Bible is, is always telling us to think about the feelings of others and to take them into consideration. But the Bible is very blunt as well. And Jeremiah came to God and was very blunt. Just kill them like sheep going to slaughter. Just, just annihilate them. We'll start all over. He even goes so far to say, you've tested my heart. You see, I'm not like them. A little bit of pride in Jeremiah's heart, right? So he comes with that complaint and God answers him. Here's what God says in verse 5. If you have raced, now this is God speaking to Jeremiah. If you have raced with men on foot and they have wearied you, how will you compete with horses? Jeremiah didn't ask anything about horses. Jeremiah didn't talk about running. 
He wasn't talking about running any race. He said, hey, I got a plan. I think it's a good plan, Lord. And just like Jesus does, I mean, you see Jesus respond in the same exact way. He says, if you're running with men and they're outrunning you, how am I going to move you to the next level? How am I going to cause you to grow? You're not ready where you're at. Why would I put you any further? Let me give you a real practical example because many of us don't have horses. Um, let's say your child is in first grade and they haven't learned to read yet. And they haven't learned their alphabet and they don't know how to add. And they don't know how to subtract and they don't know all their colors and they don't know all their shapes. And the school says, yeah, we'll just pass them on to second grade. You would say, no, they're not ready. They're not ready for the next grade. They don't have these fundamentals down to move on to newer things. They can't start writing in cursive because they can't write, write in, in normal writing. They can't go on to multiplication and division because they don't know addition and subtraction. They can't, they can't start reading books because they can't read a sentence. The child might come to you and say, no, I want to go to second grade. And you would say, no, child, you can't. You're not ready. We're going to learn these things first before I move you forward. And God says the same thing to Jeremiah. You have not, you, you, you can't handle now when you want me to move you ahead. You cannot run with men and you want to run with horses. You'll be trampled to death. You can't handle the job you have now, but you want a raise and you want more responsibility. But you can't handle where you're at now. You want more relationships, but you want them for selfish reasons. You want children, but you won't care for yourself and others. You want, you want to move on, but you don't want to pay the price. Not going to do it. If you want to grow like, like I want to grow, we have to master where we're at now through Jesus. We have to stand up. We can't just say annihilate everything, take away the circumstances, and let me walk forward. We've got to walk through that valley of the shadow of death every step earning every thing that comes through that. And then you will be made stronger. And then you will be made brand new. This is part of that transformation that Jesus has for you. So all of that, let's bring it back down to one final thing. What do we do today? You give your life to Jesus. It always starts there. Give your life to Christ. But I'm already a Christian. Yeah, stay a Christian. Give your life to Jesus today. Fall before him. Ask for forgiveness. Repent of your sin and say, Lord, I have been stagnant. I have not been still. I've been stagnant. I've been digging my heels in. I haven't, I haven't done what you've called me to do. I may not even know specifically what I'm called to do, but I know in general what I'm to be doing and I'm not doing it. So what do we do? We surrender. Lord, help us. Help me to do what you've called me to do. To, to have the integrity to do it when it doesn't feel good. To endure when the hard times come. To persevere when all of the pain is just there in front of our faces. To not forget the promises in times of trial and exalt those promises in times of joy. To remember them and exalt them in both. We sing that song, joy, 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 right in my soul, right? A lot of us weren't feeling it this morning because we're be our lives are being dictated by our experience. Our lives are being, uh, uh, they're being dictated by our circumstances. 
Jesus loving you, Jesus loving you so much that he would die for you, is that's as real, if not more of a real circumstance than anything else you're going through right now. So let's stand together and pray together. We're all in different circumstances, but we're all going the same direction. We're all headed towards Jesus, the way, the truth, and the life. He's the one that has come to bring life and life more abundant. You will not find it anywhere else. Let's pray together. Jesus, we come to you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. We just come to you, Lord. All the formalities and all the... We throw that all away, Lord, because we've come to just surrender to you. Father, we want to run our race and we want to run it with endurance. And we want to run it well. We want to follow your commands. And as as, as impossible as that seems from time to time, Lord, the command still remains to do so. I pray that you'd help us to take the Great Commission and to take it seriously. To see our part in it. In making disciples, teaching the gospel and the commands of Jesus. Baptizing in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, I pray now that you would do that which I am not capable of doing. Take these words, the word of the gospel, and penetrate the hearts of your people. I pray that you would lead them to repentance. I pray that you would lead them to conviction. But that that would ultimately culminate in your love and your forgiveness. Holy Spirit, do with that which I am not able to do, that which we are not able to do ourselves for ourselves change us make us ready help us to put on the armor of God to, to run our race that you've let, laid before us especially when that means just being still and knowing that you are God Jesus you know us you know our fears you know our insecurities you know what hurts us and troubles us you know what keeps us awake at night you know what hinders us. Show us that we might repent of it and move past and through those things. That like Jeremiah, that we would not be outrun by men, but that we would outrun them. Be raised up to, to something new, Lord. A new challenge. Father, we love you. And it's for your glory that we, we, even, we even think of trying these things. It's because of your goodness that we even have this dream or this vision. Lord, we praise you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.